This is Juror 13. You are Juror 13. Tonight you'll hear interviews, opinions, and reports. Then you will have an opportunity to decide. This is episode number one of Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, the Randy Stevens case, Savannah, Georgia. Status, currently unsolved, 21 years. Juror 13 is brought to you in partnership with Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is offering an $80,000 reward for tips leading to the successful capture and prosecution of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Randy Stevens. At the end of this program, learn how to contact Crime Stoppers anonymously to help solve this case. The ideas, insights, and theories expressed in the following program are opinions and are not necessarily those of the producers. All persons are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This case is about the tragic murder of Randy Stevens. Whenever I interview anyone about their relationship with the victim of a murder, an accident, any horrific event, inevitably the stories and the recounting that is done posthumously is always glowing and positive. There are tears and smiles everywhere. That's how it works. I mean, in my estimation, that's how it works. People want to say good things. I was taught by my mentor to begin interviews by earning trust without getting too close to the subject, then checking credibility, the truthfulness that is there, listen for consistency in replies, and then work backwards to corroborate facts. In short, look for the bad stuff first. So it's fair to say that in my hunt to find dirt and dastardly behavior on the part of Mr. Stevens, I was unsuccessful. As a matter of fact, there were glowing accolades about everything from his incredible talent at automotive mechanics, pro-mod motorcycle racing, his generosity, his loyalty to his family. He was a son. He was a big brother. He was a little brother. He was a husband. He was an uncle, a stepfather, a mentor to friends in need. And these accolades, they all turned out to be true. Even the most remote connections I found, transmission shop owners, co-workers at the city shop where he modified or repaired police vehicles, uh, even to the opponents of the motorcycle racing world that he loved, they all told the same story. He was beloved. So how? How did it happen? And why? Why 21 years later in Savannah, Georgia, is the murder of a man who worked for the city directly with the police department unsolved? Join me now as we learn the case through an interview with the woman who is there for this violent, senseless act, Randy's widow, Linda Stevens, who has graciously relived and recounted the violent, harrowing moments of that October morning in 2002. On the morning of October 10th, 2002, Around 6 a.m., Linda and Randy Stevens prepared to leave their home on Duval Street in Savannah, Georgia, and head to their respective jobs. Linda, who had a military background, taught ROTC at a local high school, while Randy, an accomplished mechanic, repaired and modified vehicles for the city of Savannah, a job he'd been doing for years. This is Linda describing what happened that morning. October is dark, and I told him, I said, um, are you getting ready to go now? He said, I'm going to go crank the truck up because it's kind of cool outside. I said, well, wait for me. I'm going to leave when you leave at 630 because it's kind of dark. Because when I turn the porch light off, it's really dark when I come outside on the carport. 
because he parks in the second driveway. I park on the carport where the laundry room is. I said, I'll meet you in the kitchen. So I came at the bedroom into the hallway. I heard gunshots. And I ran into the kitchen. We have a double door, the wooden door and the glass screen door. Mm -hmm. And I opened the door and I looked to the left. I didn't see anyone. I looked to the right and there was a man with a ski mask on. He had my husband in front of my BMW and, and the car, the laundry room. And he was poking him in the chest with the gun. And I started screaming for them, hey, let him go, whatever you want. You know, because there was nothing in the house that was worth our life. Mm -hmm. And um, the guy looked back at me. And he just like ignored me and Randy tried to walk toward me as I was on the top of the step. Mm -hmm. um, I saw him shoot him in the thigh. And I ran into the house, there's a kitchen phone on the wall and I grabbed a kitchen phone on the wall and I looked back and the guy was standing outside the glass door pointing the gun toward me. So I took my hand off the phone, ran to the bedroom, went to the bedroom. I have an old army purse I keep between my nightstand and the trash can on my side of the bed. I have, I have a 380. it was registered. And I reached down and I realized it wasn't in there. It was still in the RV from the race it went to the weekend prior. So I didn't have my gun in the house. So I ran around the bed, tried to unlock Randy's briefcase because he has a nine millimeter in there. And in that briefcase, that's what we travel with. I raise some money like if we break down we could pay someone to store our RV or store our race trailer because, you know, we invested a lot of money in those things. We don't want to leave it side of the road and get it towed. And I couldn't get the combination. It was the same as the gas cap on the dually, and I just couldn't. I just, like, everything just froze. And I heard someone coming down the hallway, and I said, well, he's not calling my name. It's not my husband. So I ran on the other side of the bedroom because they added another bedroom bathroom to the house when we got married. Cause I had a teenager mm -hmm. and we can't share one bathroom, gotta have two bathrooms. So when I looked, I had half of my body in the closet. I slid the closet open and I looked and the guy came in with the ski mask, was pointing a gun at me. He had it sideways and asked me, where's your safe? And I said, I don't have a safe. I said, I have a briefcase. I got money in my briefcase that we travel with. It's on the other side of the room. He told me, I said, no, I'm not coming over there. This is on the side of the bed. So he went on the side of the bed with the gun still pointed at me. He got the briefcase. He pulled up the bedspread, the comforter, and he got the briefcase. And I looked at him. He was coming back toward me. And I closed my eyes because at this point, I thought he was going to shoot me. He didn't shoot me. When I opened my eyes, he was gone. I've talked to more than a few folks involved in this case that were dubious as to how a person like Linda, with military training, could actually freeze, as she puts it, and not be able to dial 911 right away, not remember the combination to the briefcase where the other gun was, and in general, be paralyzed to the point of inactivity, closing her eyes just hoping that she wasn't going to hear or feel that fatal gunshot, only to open them and find that the assailant was gone. My producer and I were skeptical at first as to how this may have happened, so we turned to the expert. Dr. Kenneth Pound, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and clinical professor in psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Pound spoke with me about the potential for such a freeze-up. Here's Dr. Kenneth Pound. It's certainly possible that she may have frozen up. I mean, there's a difference between being trained 
and you know in crisis work in um even in, in in crisis police work and having something happen in your own home first of all there's the element of surprise and shock and then there is the um you know extra sense of vulnerability and um you know being confronted if you're confronted with your partner being being uh treated violently in mm-hmm. some way i mean I, I think somebody could you know be overcome and you know cr- being trained in crisis doesn't doesn't train us to you know completely eliminate our feelings and our natural responses after realizing the gunman had fled linda bolted down the hallway to find randy barely alive half in the doorway it was then that she noticed small bubbles in the blood coming from his mouth. She makes note here that her military training told her this meant he was still alive. She ran back down the hallway and called 911. As she returned to Randy, the police seemed to arrive in record time. He got there so fast. And how did he get there so fast? Well, APO Tony Townsend had been stationed across the street that morning. Presumably, he heard the gunshots saw Linda flicking the porch lights on and off, and ran to her aid. From the look of his signed preliminary report, Randy was still alive, as Mr. Townsend listed the incident as an aggravated assault. Remember that name, Tony Townsend, because it's going to come up again in later episodes. I saw the blue lights because the door, the door was open. I stepped over my husband. I flickered the porch light so the cop could see me, and he came running out. He had his gun drawn. I said, He's gone. There's one near but me. He came in, and the first thing that was checked for a pulse on Randy. He said he was breathing, and he walked over into the kitchen and took the clock off the wall and took the battery mm-hmm. out. And I didn't know why he did that. But later on, I finally get him a time frame, mm-hmm. and um, he told me to calm down. He's got a pulse. And by that time, two ambulances came, and while they were trying to take care of Randy. I went out, so he told me to go outside. So I was outside in the, in the driveway, and uh, my brother-in-law showed up, then my parents. And I was just, I was just, I just couldn't think. And I asked him, I said, would you ride with Randy? I'll ride in the other ambulance. I was just too nervous, because I, I saw when they, I saw the blood, and I just didn't, mm-hmm. I was just freaked out. And I was like, who could do this? So there's a lot going on here. Linda's got a ton to absorb. So much so that she actually learns about a couple odd details of the case from a news broadcast. Somehow a bar stool ended up in her front yard and there's a bloody palm print on her BMW. That evening on the news I saw my, I have a, that same china cabinet I had up against the wall. Like we come in and I had a bar stool there and I saw my bar stool outside. So I called him. He said, why did you put my bar stool outside on the carport? He said, we didn't take anything out your house. So they got the bar stool. It was Randy's fingerprints. What they think what happened, Randy grabbed the bar stool, tried to keep them out the house, mm-hmm. block them out. And the bar stool came out. They guess they pulled it out of his hand. The guy did. And um, I believe it got a palm print off my BMW. But no one takes palm prints. But I believe just the FBI, maybe that's what I was told. So... Um, we're at Memorial. We're waiting. He's in surgery. By that time, his mom and dad's there. A lot of teachers and my principal showed up. My supervisor from um, Beach High School showed up to support me. My pastor was there. 
um, we were waiting and waiting, it seemed like it was forever, and it came out. The, the guy, doctor came in, he stood to the door, and you could tell it put on some clean, because it, it was crisp white jacket. Mm -hmm. And um, he did his hand like this. And when he folded his hand, he was scanning and trying to figure out who he needs to talk to. And I raised my hand. And that's when he came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry, he didn't make it in surgery. And I said, well, how many times did he shoot my husband? He said, five times. The sad mention of the fact that the doctor had changed into a crisp white jacket, as Linda describes the scene in the waiting room, is an understated reference to the fact that she knew just how bloody and horrific Randy's fatal injuries were. It's as if she knew the moment she saw the doctor that it was all over. I asked her if she remembered what went through her mind at that moment. I just went numb when he told me that my, my husband didn't make it in surgery and it was, and I just dropped down to my knees. I was like, oh my God, my whole, my whole life changed. You know, my future changed. Everything that I thought that we would grow old together, get gray hair together, get dentures together, hot flashes, the whole nine yards. I don't get to experience that with him. After a brief stay with her brother-in-law, Bobby Stevens, and his wife, Tanya, she started slowly to get control of her life and understand what had happened. Things, however, or people, I should say, and their opinions of the murder began to shift. Like a week later, you know, I, I, was, I was hearing these rumors from friends and... Um, my in-laws turned on me. On the day that choices were to be made regarding Randy's funeral service arrangements, tempers flared at the funeral home. I spoke to various members of the Stevens family and Linda, and everyone agreed that it was a difficult day. Here's Linda describing that scene. We had an argument at the funeral home. It was like, it was like I was, everybody was talking. I only expected for my in-laws to be there. My mother-in-law, father-in-law, sister and brother-in-law, and my um, brother-in-law's wife. There, there was an aunt there. I can't remember who I was there, but I didn't think about it. Then my family was like, wow, all these people. And everybody's saying what they wanted. And I'm like, I'm not getting a chance to say what I want. I'm the wife. And so I said, well, can I have some respect? Can I say what I want? Y'all tell me what y'all want. I haven't said what I want. How I want to do this, and the funeral director looked at me and said, "Well, you have to find whatever you say goes, Miss Stevens." Now, argument that that got ugly. My my father-in-law, he's very sweet. He got upset. He said, "I I knew him before anybody. Of course, you know for me, he's your son. But you got to look at my side of the thing too. That's your son. That was my husband. I loved him just as much as they did. It was a lot of emotions. We all calmed down." The hostility left the table, and we were able to talk calmly. We went and looked at the caskets. And I asked my father, I said, would you pick the suit for your son? Daddy Page picked the suit. I picked the casket, told him this is what I want, picked the fault. And we, we had the funeral. But prior, between that time I left the funeral home to the day of the funeral, I stayed at my brother-in-law's house with him and his wife till about a, a week. That's Bobby. Bobby's house and Tanya. I stayed with them for about seven to ten days and I decided it's time to go home. 
And that's when I started hearing about the rumors. During the course of these interviews, I learned that Linda is a devout Christian. She offered this possibility as to why she was unharmed. I talked to my pastor about it. I told him, I said, when the guy pointed the gun at me, I said, I closed my eyes because I saw he thought he was going to shoot me. I told him I felt like it was heat in my face all the way down to my feet. And my pastor told me it wasn't my time. I was covered in the blood. And I kind of said, yeah, I've, been, I've heard that before in the Bible study. What Linda's pastor is inferring to her is that as the assailant pointed the gun at her, she was protected by the blood of Christ. A minute ago, we heard Linda Stevens talking about how she began to hear rumors, and that had to be difficult. Rumors are tricky things. As soon as they gather legs, they take a story just as far as it can go. Let's listen now as Sandra Stevens Smalls, Randy's little sister, and Derek Duncan, a racing associate, give their versions of what they saw after the murder. She still had a jury on, and I find that strange because it was an attempted robbery, and her wedding ring was still on her finger. When you say wedding ring, do you mean like a diamond? Like an engagement? Like I mean, a... her wedding ring was four carats. I didn't see the picture of a woman whose husband just got killed. What was her demeanor? Calm. So when I'm, when I'm looking at her, she still got all her jewelry on. She still had all of her jewelry on. That's what people were saying, including the last two people we just heard from, Randy's sister, Sandra, and his racing associate, Derek. They were confused by this. But what does it mean? Does it mean that it's simply strange because there was an armed home invasion, as Sandra pointed out? Or are they suggesting that there's something more sinister going on here? Just because someone doesn't have their jewelry stolen during a home invasion, does it mean they should be a suspect? You are Juror 13. Vote for what you think it means after this episode on the Juror13.live poll at Juror13.live. So what do we know so far? We know that on that fateful morning, Linda and Randy got ready to go to their respective jobs. We know, as Linda has told us, that a ski-masked assailant shot Randy five times, killing him. We know that police and then EMS responded with great speed. We learned from Linda that after a brief time, she began to experience finger-pointing and accusations from her in-laws and others. At this point, it's a tough spot for her. Her grief compounded by accusations of others. Why? Why, though, is it merely because the survivors who are stricken with unspeakable sorrow and loss can only understand some of this by assigning blame? Or is there evidence that they have or believe they have that support their accusations? We have a lot to delve into. Our investigation took us deep into the story, beyond what you just heard Linda tell us. I'm going to tell you about everything that led us up to where we are now. There are, to put it bluntly, a lot of conflicting details and a lot of speculation. But that always happens with an unsolved murder. What happened in this investigation? What was collected? What was considered? Who was considered? And is there anything that we can work with, evidence, that is to say, that will help us now 
There will be a lot of emotional interviews, but amongst that, you will hear some undeniable facts. The bottom line is there were originally three witnesses to this crime. One of them is dead, one of them is widowed, and one of them is walking around freely amongst you today. To understand where this all begins, we have to understand the world in which Randy lived, motorcycle racing. We will learn about this sport, the races, and the folks who populated the sport at the time, some of them not such nice people. Some of them, though, salt of the earth. Carlos Wilkerson, Randy's hand-picked co-racer who was practically family, will explain in detail about that world, about Randy, about his concerns for Randy's safety, and about his confusion as to what really happened that morning. Why was there a suitcase packed and ready to go in the truck that Randy was getting ready to leave in? Also, his confusion as to something he and Randy's father and brother recovered in the bedroom at the crime scene later that evening. Remember, Linda claimed that there was no weapon available to her at the time. I have an old army purse I keep between my nightstand and the trash can on my side of the bed. I have, I have a 380. it was registered. And I reached down and I realized it wasn't in there. It was still in the RV from the race it went to the weekend prior. So I didn't have my gun in the house. And here's Carlos explaining what he found at the scene. So her story was, she went down the hall and when she got to her bedroom, she grabbed the phone off the nightstand. And I ran that back to my mind. So I went to the nightstand and when I looked, there's a pistol laying right by if you would have reached six inches from that phone to that gun, is how close the gun would have been if that was the case. You just heard Carlos Wilkerson say that when he was at the crime scene to help with the cleanup after the police had left, he retraced Linda's steps as she had stated them to him, and he found a weapon by the phone. Now, it may sound like a case of she said, he said, but it gave me enough pause to look further. I mean, that's about as diametrically opposed as statements get. And if it's true, why wasn't it collected as evidence to begin with? It was a pistol found at a crime scene where the victim was murdered by gunshots. It was concerning to me, to say the least. On the next Juror 13, we'll attempt to answer these questions and more on Episode 2 of Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, The Randy Stevens Case. Just about everyone has heard of Crime Stoppers. There are folks who even equate it with John Walsh's America's Most Wanted or other shows that ask the public for assistance with open cases, wanted people, bad guys. But somehow, there are still people out there who see it in the same light as snitching, just because it helps the police. I mean, if you're raised to keep your mouth shut because that's the code of the road where you're from, well, guess what? When crime happens to somebody else, that's a pretty easy code to live by. But when it's your loved one, your loved one that's the victim, you'll wish that someone would step forward. You'll wait and you'll hope and you'll pray for that day when the case starts rolling because someone, some one person with a conscience speaks up. Let's face it, in this case, the Randy Stevens case, somebody knows. Somebody out there knows. 
And here we are, here we are waiting for you, that person to do the right thing. The 80 grand is icing. The moral responsibility, your moral responsibility to speak up is the cake. Do the right thing. And in case you have a reason to be afraid to speak up, Crime Stoppers has it all set up for you to be completely anonymous. Brittany Heron, the executive director, is here to tell you how. I'm Brittany Heron, and I'm the executive director of Crime Stoppers of Savannah, Chatham County. Crime Stoppers is the only truly anonymous tip line in the area. We wipe our servers at the source and do not track IP addresses, location, or phone numbers, so there is never a way for anyone to find out that you submitted a tip. Submitting a tip is simple. You can call our 24-7 tip line at 912-234-2020 and speak to a live person. You can submit a tip online by visiting savannachathamcrimestoppers.org or you can download the P3 app from your app store. Once your tip leads to an arrest, you will receive a cash reward of up to $2,500 and possibly more for specific cases. You pick up your reward at a bank and instead of giving your name, just simply give the code that we provide you. Help stop and prevent crime or solve a cold case by calling 912-234-2020 or visiting savannachathamcrimestoppers.org today. Juror13.live. When the episode is over, the facts remain. Juror13.live. Photos, facts, and faces. See the people and the events that we talk about in every episode. Read opinions, reports, and theories. Vote on Juror13.live. You are Juror13. Interact with special guests on announced dates and post your opinions and surveys about certain people, places, and things associated with Juror13. Download episodes. Join our first alerts list. Help us to help the Stevens family, folks. Remember, you can listen to new episodes of Juror 13 Weekly on Spotify, or you can just listen to any past episode or update at any time you desire on Juror13.live. Juror 13 relies on your support to continue our mission. If you'd like to become part of what we're doing, we gratefully accept any contribution Simply click on the coffee cup icon and choose any amount or just follow the prompts. We thank you. Thanks for being part of Juror 13. Once again, I'm your host, Tom Milady. My producer is Martine Rothstein. Juror 13 would also like to thank Ms. Linda Stevens, Dr. Kenneth Pound, Maya Eschett, and Carlos Wilkerson, Brittany Heron at Savannah Crime Stoppers, and Per Ubu for the theme music. Remember to listen to the latest episode of Juror 13 on Spotify and visit us on Juror13.live. Juror 13 is an Empty Nest LLC production.